from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio, it's Friday, the 29th of September. I hope you have some fun weekend plans and some exciting things with the family and some time set aside to get ahead for the week coming up and get some work done. Amazing show today. First up, we have Tyler Sully Sullivan. He is going to teach us how to build an e-commerce business. He is in the golf space. His story is a great one. After that, we're going to learn about multi-dimensional economics. Boy, that sounds confusing. Doug Howarth will be with us to discuss that topic and see how smart or dumb I am. I think we're going to find out I'm dumb, but anyway, here we go. Let's get started. Very excited to introduce my first guest. Wow. This is a really cool story. Please welcome Tyler Sullivan, but we will call him Sully. He is the founder and CEO of two different businesses. He built Bomb Tech Golf into a seven-figure e-commerce business selling bombs. Wow, that's an interesting, provocative thing. No, 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 wait. He was selling golf, of course, and sold that, had an exit, sold it for trillions of dollars, and is taking that knowledge and is helping other people build their e-commerce sites. He is now the CEO and founder of Ecom Growers, where he and his team have helped countless e-commerce businesses expo uh, explode to six or seven figures themselves. Sully, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing great. Beautiful day. Ready to play some golf, you know? One more thing to do is talk to you, so I'm excited for it. All right. Where you live in oh, that's right. You're in Vermont. Yeah, not not many people up here and the golf season's too short, but uh I'm stuck here now, you know. Guess where I went to college? Where's that? Middlebury. Oh man, yeah. We used to play them in rugby. I and played for golf. UVM. <laughs> oh really? Yes. Yes. That's a small uh, world then. We're just down the road from where you are in some of the most beautiful golf courses. Tell, uh, Sully, get wait for this. When I was a student at Middlebury, the year-round ski pass, which was for any slope in Vermont, and the golf course kicker, so the pass was $150 for any ski slope in Vermont. And if you wow. kicked in 25 more, they threw in any golf course in Vermont. <laughs> $175 for a year of skiing and golf. The true, true glory days then. Yes. That's what in the 1920s, <laughs> of course, you know, but, uh, anyway, I think Vermont is the most beautiful place on earth. I just absolutely love it and miss it. All right. How'd you get started? Tell us the story of your, uh, bomb tech golf business. How'd tell us the whole yeah, story. Yeah. 
I started in 2012 with no expectations of starting it. I was trying to compete in the Home Run Derby of Golf World Long Drive. And I was not very good, but I was good enough to qualify for some local events. I was hitting it like 360, and other guys competing were hitting it like over 400. Um, But it, it got me hooked into golf again. I just became obsessed, and all I would do is hit driver. And... I, I was bored at my day job and made literally the world's worst website trying to sell golf clubs. And I sold nothing for about six months. And then one day I was on my boat on Lake Champlain and it, it was no yacht, but uh, I got an email and the email was a sale. Uh, I sold a golf club and it, it literally blew my mind that I sold something and made money. Uh, when I physically was not in front of a computer working for someone else. And that was my first moment of momentum. And I had a crazy idea. I was talking to a former uh, frat brother, a friend of mine from UVM. I was like, you know what? I want to design my own stuff, my own golf driver. And he's like, you're not very smart. (laughs) And I'm like, well, you're not wrong. So he said, you should call up UVM and see if they'll design a golf driver with you. And I did that. And to my surprise, every year there's an engineering project you can apply for, and they accepted me as one of the projects. I took it very seriously, um, had fun the whole time with a bunch of, you know, I was at that time, I don't know, seven years out of college or something, working with college students again, and we designed it a golf club, and, you know, it was really good, and I just, the timing was beautiful. I hit Facebook and Instagram early days before ads were expensive, and we were able to scale crazy aggressively and fast and turn a passion project into a business that truly changed my life. And I mean, it's been, God, 11 years since then. And I exited and I was fired from my day job. A lot of things happened in the, those 11 years, but it was truly a passion play of I love this sport and just wanted to design something myself. And uh, good timing. Wow. Amazing. And is the, is that club I mean, better and cooler? It just drives longer for some reason. Well, yeah. So we, our original design was in an air tunnel or a wind tunnel test that we did that reduced drag and it was just really high quality premium product. And we went no retail so we could sell them at good prices and, you know, really just took care of customers. So it was really me taking care of people one-to-one and kind of accidentally built a personal brand so people felt like they could relate to me. So it was just a great product, direct consumer when no one else was really doing direct. And I accidentally, (laughs) people accidentally, if you want to call it that, liked me. And when I put myself on camera and I I actually gave a shit about them and did the best I could and it just kept going up. Uh, But yeah, I still play the clubs We're on version four and, they're awesome. All right. Very cool. And that is a, an amazing story. And it's great that UVM was throwing down like that and helping. So yeah, it was awesome. They, you, you need to give back now and, uh, <laughs> have them donate a building in your name. Oh, I'm not there yet, but, um, I'm trying to get there. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Then you sold that. Why? Why did you decide to sell? Uh, was it like selling your arm? It was a, it was a tough process. So, I mean, when I first started, it was for, purely for fun. And then, you know, when I was fired, 
way back from my day job, it became a real necessity because I had a, a kid on the way. Um, you know, and that, that changed the dynamic. It, it did not necessarily become not fun, but there was a ton of pressure to make it successful. And for me, after I think it was 11 years when I said, all right, it's time, I honestly got to the business to a point where I said, this is the absolute best I think I can do. And, you know, it kind of was, it just felt right. The market was hot. Uh, COVID, an awful thing, was actually great for golf. Um, golf has never been more popular. And e-commerce has never been more popular. So we kept selling out of product in 2020. And 2021, I just said, well, man, this is a unique opportunity. If we hit this number I forecast, I think I would be maybe, I wouldn't say stupid, but it, it's just the right time. It just felt right because we had a lot of uh, tailwinds for once because we usually, golf was not that hot. There was a lot of headwinds. Just felt like good timing. So I, I sold that kind of like the peak of demand. And I, I did have a great experience with the buyers and I worked with them. I just finished my employment agreement after 18 months and the business is doing really well. And, you know, just, it, it felt good. And I have two young kids and really want to spend, have, have the option to spend time with them and make work optional. And that was, that was why I did it, even though. It was hard to do. Um, I was ready. Wow. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. I have also been fortunate enough to be able to stay home and do the kids thing and all that. And you get tired of it in like a week. So <laughs> they're sick of me, yeah, uh, but exactly. at least I have the options to do whatever and go to any practice coach or, you know, I could be there when they, when they do want me there, uh, which is nice. And so what are some of the lessons? Obviously, great kick-ass product is a huge part of it, and timing is a part of it, too. But you're still teaching others how to do it, and you've been incredibly successful at that as well. So there must be more to the formula than just those two easy pieces. So what else is yeah. going on here? A lot, a lot of people ask me, you know, what business should I start or you know, what product should I sell? And if you're already asking me that, you're, you're screwed. You know, I was obsessed, and I think any good founder or entrepreneur, at least my experience, is just obsessed, and they're already doing it. Like, you know, whether you're making, because I have like 40 ski designs I made and fishing lure designs and just stuff that I already am doing that I love. Um, but I think if you don't have that, you're not going to make it. And that that's probably the biggest piece of the puzzle is the, the willingness to do whatever it takes at any time. And I think if you do it just for dollars, it will feel like work really quick. Like my best example of that is, okay, women's leggings are trending right now. I'm a guy. I know nothing about leggings. I should not get in the leggings business just to make a buck. You know, that, that's going to feel like work. You're not going to know what they want. So that obsession is number one. And for me, direct consumer, you know, it's really a function of, do you have an offer that you can get people to buy, you know, when they're scrolling on Facebook and Instagram, is it appealing enough to stop, look at that and say, whoa, and then go to your store, whip out their credit card and make an order. And that, that is harder than, it's not easy by any means. Um, so our agency, we work in a very specific niche. So we, we all, we already, econ brands already doing seven figures and we only do their email marketing because that was one thing we did really uh, in a unique way at BombTech. And my first employee at BombTech is actually my partner. 
at Ecom Growers, and he really runs the marketing agency. So he's he's one of the few agency owners that knows everything about Ecom because he he worked side by side with me for like seven years. So that's our unique angle. Is like we know what founders are are going through because I was a founder. He worked with me side by side. So just and that was just a natural ev- evolution. Um, I don't know if I answered your question at all. <laughs> Uh, it was great information. I want to push back on one thing you said, though, this idea that you have to love the product. I've sold a lot of stuff that I don't love, Sully, because I love not working for you. I love getting up what I want. I love wearing what I want. I love working from home and flexible hours. I love the lifestyle. And so for me, I'm excited regardless of whatever the junk is. <laughs> I, I, I can't relate to that. that? I, I personally can't relate to that because I had put so many hours in learning and, and trying to build the, the brand from scratch that if it wasn't, and I did attempt to do a different product at one point that it wasn't passionate about, I couldn't stick with it. You know, I, I had to be fully obsessed to make it the best it could be. And that's just how I went about it. I, I don't know if you can do that and be unemotional. Good for you. I couldn't do that. You know, I had to do something I could really easily communicate. I was in the head of the customer because I was the customer. But I think that was the key part to being able to scale because I was, I was the customer too, you know? That certainly makes sense. Because uh, I was always spending a lot of time or guessing or simply saying, uh, you know, asking other people for their advice. So for example, I made a bet one time, Sully, that I could start a company in six months and my students, I was a professor at the time, got to choose the country and the industry. Well, they chose furniture and I'm not a furniture guy. You know, I, I, it was not what I liked. I didn't buy any of them myself, you know? Um, you're but more I still skilled. enjoyed selling them. <laughs> yeah, my, money is good, you know? I love money. I, yeah, if you can get motivated by money, well, go for it. I, I would probably fail in that assignment. But it's not the money. It's just the fact that it, it's entrepreneurship. Any facet of it you want to talk about. I don't work for you. I wear what I want, you know, hours, any of it. No matter how you slice it, I would choose that over a great job with you because... I don't want you to tell me what to do. 100%. Yeah, I mean, getting fired from my day job when I just found out my wife was pregnant the week before Thanksgiving was my, that was my moment when I realized, you know, a job is not secure. And I, I was kind of do, doing whatever I could possibly do. And bomb tech was the thing to get me, you know, uh, a chance to not work for someone else. And that was Man, it's it's a great feeling. Uh, it, it can be lonely and difficult, but I yeah, that was the last job I had, and that was 2012. So I can relate to that. So e-commerce success comes from getting people on the site and the site being appealing. What's the ratio there of importance? Is it 50-50, I mean, there there's a couple things. It's not. It's a lot of nuance, but it's a couple of core things. You know, you got to be able to buy traffic, which is mostly Facebook, Instagram, Google, and then you need an offer 
that people trust and looks appealing for us. It was golf clubs. And, you know, we had 20,000 plus reviews and just tons of social proof and the price was right. And we explained the store. And I think that's the last piece of it too. It's like, you've got good product, you're able to buy traffic. Um, and then what's the story, right? So like a lot of people could relate to my story, um, you know, and my personal brand attached to it, which made it not feel like they were just buying a product. They felt like they were buying from a, a person. So that was a, an accidental uh, success element was attaching a founder, which was me to the brand, whether it was in emails, whether it's on the website, whether it's in an ad, um, you know, the thank you cards we send out, et cetera. You know, that helps tell a story that makes someone comfortable enough to buy online. It's a little different than buying something straight up on Amazon. You know, we're telling a story and we're stopping someone on Facebook to whatever they're scrolling and say, whoa, I need that. Uh, but the power of those platforms is just, they work so well. And we were able to spend so much profitably. We would have, we would not have existed without Facebook, Instagram, and Google ads, you know? And where did you get your high, highest ROI? Which site? Facebook. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, email was technically the highest percent of revenue because, you know, that's your email list and, you know, that was super successful for launches. But, you know, you need, your, you need new life. You need new customers, new visitors. And Facebook was, you know, for, for our product, it's worked really well. How how'd you handle the manufacturing and the distribution? Uh, that that was one of the potential reasons I was thinking of selling is, you know, inventory based businesses are not easy, um, especially difficult on cash flow. You know, because our lead times were very long, especially during COVID. So you know, you can sell a ton of product and hundreds of thousands of golf clubs, but guess what? You got to turn right around and go make hundreds of thousands of more. <laughs> so, so it's a, the cash flow can be difficult. Uh, but over years, you know, I was pretty, I was really uh, efficient with operations and only had two in-house employees that did customer service. And then everyone else was an outsource expert. So I had an email agency I used, zero agency I used, a 3PL we used, and then like an inbound shipping company. Um, so we we I would just be the coordinator of those experts and allowed me to not do the day to day work and golf whenever I wanted. But it took me it took me two kids and really my second kid to uh, I said I'm gonna take six weeks off before she was born. And because I did that, it made me realize I don't need to sit in the office and work all day. I have people in place that are smarter than me and I just need to be the coordinator of that. And that allowed me to, you know make more money and actually work less. Um, so yeah, it took a long time and many life events to, to set it up in that way that it wasn't super stressful, but manufacturing your own brand is, is not an easy task. And it seems to me that you would be at a disadvantage because you're not associated with a star, right? That I know of that hasn't come up yet. Maybe you are, and I don't know it, but we are not see that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, is that a an advantage? I can see that, you know, them, you know, having a bad run and then they don't deserve the money you're paying them, or you know, they get drunk and crash out and say something stupid at a con. You know, all there's a thousand opportunities 
for them to be stupid in the world. And you don't want to be associated with someone like that. Right. But on the other hand, building a brand, everything in golf is associated with a star, right? You're going against the trend. Yeah. We just did everything a full 180 of how it was done before. Cause the reality was we could never afford big names to play the products. Retail was not a channel. I wanted to go in for payment terms and just, we weren't big enough. So we said no pros, no retail, and we'll just pass our savings on to you. It'll make an awesome product. So we really became the weekend warrior, the regular golfer, you know, the guys that just want to have fun, their club, their club company. Uh, but the clubs are truly premium. They're just priced really well. Um, a big brand, uh, a big name guy may have helped a lot. It may not have, matter at all because we really we were, were kind of the people's club you know that we only cared about our customers and just try to stay in our own lane you know that that's the beauty of selling direct we, we could talk to them one-on-one have real relationships with them talk to them email you know all, all the other channels on the phone and it, it felt at least to me even when i was selling like it was a one-to-one thing and people would be like, Oh, let me talk to Sully or, you know, the guys that work in customer service. So that was kind of the beauty of being different, you know? Yes, very true. It reminds me of Cirque du Soleil when they were starting that brand decades ago, the two biggest expenses of a circus are the animals moving around elephants and feeding elephants is really expensive. And then the stars like Gunter Gable, Williams, I think is his name. The guy who put his head in the tiger's mouth and (laughs) Cirque du Soleil Soleil said, let's get rid of the two biggest expenses. Let's have no animals and no stars. And they're able to charge more than say Ringling brothers, even though their cost structure is less than Ringling brothers, which of course has gone out of business. Um, (laughs) Wow. Fascinating. You got rid of two of the biggest expenses. You got rid of the cost of doing retail. You got rid of the cost of having a celebrity and the model works better. It works for us. You know, we're, we're not trying to be, or at least I wasn't trying to be this biggest, largest brand in the world. You know, at the time I was just having fun with it and it truly grew organically in terms of like expectations. So I, any, any growth or any thing sustainable to live off, I was, I was pretty happy with, you know, I wasn't trying to get greedy and try to be the biggest brand and go huge. I just am pretty conservative in that sense. And it, this was our niche. We kind of reached what I thought was the best size we could get to. Um, I, I wouldn't say there's a ceiling on it, but it just, that's what works for us, you know, and, and we kind of really stood for that. What do you think about live and the way the Saudis have come in and basically bought the PGA? I haven't heard really an update in the last month. It seems like everyone, uh, that story's they're in a negotiating phase perhaps or something. It seems like it's gone dark. Um, uh, yeah, you heard I, I, anything and what are your thoughts on it? It seems to me that the players that didn't go live early really got the short end of the shaft on that one. Um, I honestly really don't even watch golf anymore. Cause I was so <laughs> golfed out for, it, this one thing with starting a golf company you love so much is it can turn to work at some point. So I, I, I struggled for a couple of years just enjoying the game. So the last year or two, I really have tried to like 
disconnect myself from the business in terms of like mentally and just enjoy it, which is really hard if you can imagine. A lot of people run up to me like, oh, you're so away from bomb tech or they recognize me, which is great. And I try to be as friendly as I can, but I'm like, hey, I just want to golf. <laughs> You know, um, so it's an interesting dynamic. So yeah, I'm kind of totally out of the loop with most of that stuff. Yeah. Well, it seems like everybody <laughs> is. And the most important question as a, uh, boater on Lake Champlain, does <laughs> champ exist? Yes or no. Champ is Vermont's version of the Loch Ness monster. What are your thoughts? Champ? Yes or no? hundred percent exists. Really? Why, yeah. why do you, why are you so emphatic about that? I, I think I've seen, I, we have a, a pontoon, but I think I've seen them. Really? Like how, when, where, <laughs> what? Well, the kid, the kids, you know, they like going to Lake monster games and stuff. So we got to keep that dream alive, you know? Okay. Um, <laughs> so is it really there? I don't know, but it's, it's fun to imagine it is. Yes. As long <laughs> as it's a friendly monster. Yes. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't caught him yet. We've caught some big fish, but have not kind of thing that worthy to be called champ. And the, the new business, uh, tell us just briefly about that. Who are you hoping to work with at Ecom growers? Uh, what's the process? Give us a minute on that. Yeah. So that, that was kind of an organic thing that happened when I was doing podcast interviews. This was like six years ago, just when bomb tech was starting to do really well. And case studies came out. A lot of econ brands and founders were pinging me like, hey, can you help me? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, then my first employee, Chris, who was like the absolute dream employee, who's actually one of the engineers helping design the products at UVM, became my first employee, worked with me for like six years. He's like, hey, do you mind if I help them? I said, and he was doing all my email, which was driving a ton of revenue for us. And I'm like, sure, go ahead. Um, and then he got another client, another client. Essentially, I said, hey, what do you want to do here? And I'm like, do you want to take this full time? And I wrote a business plan with him of how he could quit bomb tech and make more money with his own business, which became Ecom Growers. And essentially, fired my best employee to then become a partner, or not fire him, but help him exit that. Uh, and now we're partners in the agency and have been for six years, which is kind of crazy to think. But yeah, we work with very similar brands that they're not golf related, but direct consumer brands. And we just run all their email campaigns, all their automations and just drive more revenue, uh, with our email strategies. And it's been fantastic. So we're, uh, I think we've got like 35 clients we work with now and, um, taking on more and it's, that's where I'm spending most of my time today is just helping them out and talking to founders, like kind of like the old days. Cause I can't golf every day. And what's the website for that? Uh, ecomgrowers.com. And if someone sets up a call and sounds good, we just do an audit and show them exactly, uh, what we would do and they can run with it or they can hire us to do it. Fantastic. Tyler, amazing story. Congratulations. Uh, great stuff. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. We're going to talk about multidimensional economics next. Tyler's an expert on that, too. He'll be with us for that as well. You're, you're down yeah. on multidimensional economics, too, right? Uh, I'm going to pass. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs>
We are back. And again, thank you for being with us on this Friday. We just have a few minutes left before I'll let you go on vacation and have fun for the weekend. Before we do that, we need to teach you a little economics, as I alluded to. Please welcome Doug Howarth to the show. He is the guy who founded something called multidimensional economics, also known as hyperonomics. He has worked with some of the most impressive companies out there, NASA Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, uh, Virgin Galactic. And he has a patent and has been working in the field of understanding the markets and came up with a multidimensional fourth, fifth dimensions that we can be studying the markets with. He has a new book coming out early next year on this and has written 15 peer-reviewed papers uh, talking about his economic discoveries. Doug, welcome. How are you doing? Jim, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate this opportunity. I'm doing great. Thank you. Okay. Supply equals demand. From there, that's where we. That's our understanding. Now, take us to multi-dimensional. What? What? What are we supposed to? <laughs> what's the next? Step? Well, the <clears throat> supply and demand kind of works for something that's really simple, like a, uh, a commodity. Like it might work for the uh, the price of say iron ore. There might only be one price in the world for iron ore, but iron goes into cars, and when we get into the multi-dimensional uh, aspect of the cars. The cars have a certain, like for electric cars, they have a certain range that people are willing to pay for, and they have a certain horsepower that people are willing to pay so for. So you look at range, that's one dimension, and you look at horsepower, that's another dimension, and they both affect price. A third dimension, and then on a an opposing plane, we have the, the price as the price goes up, the quantity sold goes down. So the discovery is that these these two forces, we, what we would call value for the the, uh, the sustainable price of a product based on the features like the horsepower and the range, the value and the demand are on opposite sides of a price axis forming a four-dimensional system. And that lets us figure out if things in a market are overpriced or underpriced what the limit of the market might be and if we plot all these these locations where these products are as little points it actually gives us maps to show us where the open spaces in a market exist are where they are and where they might be in the next few weeks months or years okay and then what do we use that for what's the takeaway well uh, one of the takeaways is that there's there that People self-organize in these markets, and so there's a in the on the what's known as the demand side. There's a limit that people form for themselves, kind of like uh, where the shoreline hits the where the water hits the shoreline on, on a beach. You you can't take your boat onto the onto the into the land. You can't take your car out into the sea. And this that that physical barrier is something that people have to recognize. Well, there's financial barriers that the market sets up for itself. And so if you don't understand that such barriers exist, you may try to exceed them. So most recently, I pointed out to a company that was building a supersonic business jet that they were trying to exceed a market 
market frontier, a demand frontier that had been put up. And uh, they wrote me back and said, no, we just got a big order in. And, you know, I've been tracking this for years. And it, my analysis said they were, weren't going to make it. So I put up a LinkedIn post and said they weren't. And then six months later, they went bankrupt. So that's one thing you can use it for. Another thing we use it for is we actually created a, a fund. Um, we, we call it the hypernomics fund, not open to the public. I want to make that clear. It's my own money just as a test fund, but it's been running for three and a half years. And we're doing, we only take S and P 500 stocks and we're doing more than twice as well as the S and P 500 over three and a half years. So that's a couple ways you can use it. Well, those are very impressive ways to use it. Uh, yeah, everyone's going to want in on that. Yeah, I, I think I think what will happen is that people will gradually gravitate to this. And be, uh, in fact, my publisher, Wiley, is going to put this put my book out as a textbook. So we think that this the the, uh, the concepts here revise a, a great deal of mo what we now call modern economics and lets people see real world events happening uh, in front of their eyes instead of trying to hypothesize about what's going on. So that's the, the, the big distinction here between what it is that we do and what's been done before in, in introductory views of the, of the market is that it turns out that everything can be measured. And if, once the market becomes mature, they start to demonstrate collective behaviors that we can characterize and uh, use to our advantage. So what is your goal with this dog? What do you want this to turn into? Well, um, in, on the intellectual side, I want it to turn into first a, a, a class at university and then eventually a, what they call a uh, concentration in say business school. You know, they have concentrations for like finance or something like that. And eventually I want it to turn into its own discipline. So that's what I'd like it to do in the uh, academia settings and then on a professional level i'd like people to be able to take the software that we've invented to go along with this and uh, start to apply it to their businesses right now famously um one harvard professor clayton christensen said that 95 percent of all new product ideas fail every year well what if it went from 95 percent to just 94 percent doesn't sound like much but that would mean that instead of only 5% of businesses succeeding, 6% of the business ideas would succeed. Well, that's a 20% improvement. And we think that once people start to apply this to what they do in a marketplace, that the success rates will go up and that the whole economy will benefit from it. You also mentioned some really interesting, just random use cases. And I don't know, this could lead somewhere interesting. For example, you are going to reorganize a restaurant and mm, you're going to change yeah. the seating, but you're going to increase the revenue by 25% by just changing the seating. How, how does that yeah, happen? Well, we actually did that. We have a favorite, we have our favorite restaurant, which is about a mile from where I'm sitting right now. And, um, during COVID uh, here in California, that's where I live in just North of Los Angeles. Uh, we had the restaurants open during COVID, during the uh, winter months, but they're only allowed to be out in the, people are only allowed to be seated out in the patio. And so they had a small patio, and I had made the observation that most of the, the party sizes that go in through this place are parties of 
typically two, once in a while one, and less frequently, you know, families or groups of three, four, and more people. And it, and it turns out that the average restaurant party size in the United States, there's uh, more than twice as many parties of two as there are parties of four in the United States back in the year in which I studied this. So I went to this restaurant. I already knew this intuitively, but I looked it up later. And I asked the, the manager who had had four table, three, three tables of six and three tables of four and just a couple tables of two. I said, do you want to make more money? She said, well, sure. Yeah, I do. I mean, we knew this, this woman very well. And I said, well, you've got too many big tables. They're only partially occupied. What you need to do is to remove some of the big tables and put in tables of two, which will end up being more fully occupied and you'll do better. And basically, she did that, and the revenue jumped up 25%. So that's one of the simplest ways you can apply this to your real world, is to see what patterns people demonstrate, and then try to match the pattern that people do in the real world, and then try to match that to whatever business that you're working with. What happens if an NFL player decreases their 40-yard dash by just a quarter of a <laughs> second? That's totally irrelevant. Nothing will happen by that. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yes, Jim, you, Jim, you read very deeply there. It turns out that if you if you're an NFL wide receiver and you you uh, were to decrease your forty yard dash time, and you'd already made a certain number of touchdowns per year, and, and you've been in the league a certain number of years, so we, what we did is we homogenized the data, so we we're only looking at people that were in the league for six years so they got past the rookie contract and uh, they had a certain number of receptions per game if your speed goes up by a quarter down by a quarter of a second your your the value to your team goes up by two-thirds and so the convert conversely if you were to lose a quarter second if you're making 10 million dollars per year your your value to your team would go drop down to six million so it's a uh, tremendously important thing to be able to apply this to your your physical well-being too i mean if i'd known this back in school i probably would have worked really hard on the 40 time you know you could have gone up another level or two in, in sports by trying to do something like that so yeah it's important <laughs> uh, that's funny yeah it's funny and it's it's weird how it works too um I uh, I had another interesting story your your listeners might like to hear is that um, I know you like to ask questions about creativity hacks and and so one of the things I like to think about is two seemingly unrelated things and see if there's some common ground between them and so Richard Feynman the physicist the Nobel Prize winning physicist famously would do and probably things the guy that. that figured out why the challenger blew up and was able to get it actually through the bureaucracy, which I thought was one Excellent of the more point. interesting stories. But anyway, I, I yes, uh, fascinating. No, no, that's fascinating. Your listeners need to hear that. If you haven't seen the movie about that, that's, uh, and read the book, it's which movie really fascinating. Um, I think it was well, actually a series. I think it's called yeah. the, the the Challenger Disaster. Yeah, it was I on, saw this in a documentary. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. Right. There's also a movie about it too, and uh, really well done. So anyway, go on. But anyway, Feynman. Yeah. So Feynman famously would study ants. You know, not seemingly re, you know too related to physics. And um, so one day I found myself at the end of a trailhead and um, just sitting there 
stretching and I, I looked down at an ant and, and the ant started to go in a counterclockwise motion and it seemed to draw almost a complete circle in its motion except the, the beginning the ending point of the circle was a little bit wider than the beginning point of the circle i go wow that's really weird and then he did it again on a continually widening circle and then he did it one more time so he made three loops in a spiral and then it hit me jim that this guy this this little ant who by the way i found out after doing some more reading which i'll tell you about here presently this ant that had been this species which has been around for 40 million years this ant was doing reconnaissance so i raced home and looked up typed in ant reconnaissance into the internet and i'll be doggone if these little guys this species of ant that's been around for tens of millions of years they do reconnaissance and so what this guy was doing in his typically counterclockwise motion was he was looking for open spaces much like people do in marketplaces which he was trying to figure out another place for his ant colony to go an open space that was dry and um, had the right amount of height to it could get a little bit of light into it but not too much they it turns out that the ants have a whole bunch of what we would call in the market features they have a whole bunch of features to the geography that they're playing with that they actually select for and they try to get the best domicile for themselves that they can based on these these um preferences that they have which is exactly what people do in every market all times since the beginning of markets because if ants have been doing this for 40 million years and they have people have been doing this since prehistoric times interesting which i thought was very fascinating that is fascinating yeah. And you said an interesting phrase there that I think we need to focus on. And I think you've said it sure. before, open spaces. Yeah. Data is helps us discover the open space, which is what entrepreneurs should always be looking to do. How can, right. Doug, we use this to be better entrepreneurs, to find niches that are currently unoccupied right now? So talk to us entrepreneurs about using this. Yeah, uh, the way to think of the open spaces in a market is, is to make the analogy back to geography. So when I say an open space in a market, it's, it's just like using an open space in a geographical sense. So in the, in the uh, late 1800s, there was an Oklahoma land rush and people would sprint off to open spaces in Oklahoma and state claims. And some people would jump the gun. Those are the, known as the Sooners, and other people waited till the gun went off on the boom. So those are boomers, so boomer sooner. If you knew where the best pieces of land were before you before the gun went off, you could get a better piece of land. Well, if you and so where every person is on a map could be likened to a little dot, just a push pin on on a map. Where map would represent where somebody is. Well, it turns out you can get the same kind of point data in any market relative to any open space to the features that they like or the feature or the, the quantity versus the prices. You can see if there's an open gap in the prices. And what you want to do is you want to find a space that's unoccupied. It's much like trying to put in a, a uh, McDonald's McDonald's physically when you buy a franchise, you want to try to be around a bunch of people, but you want to be 
adjacent to another McDonald's. So you try to get away from the other McDonald's to get your little piece of of the uh, populace that would come to your McDonald's. And so in a market, what you want to do is people have demonstrated, again, going back to electric cars, people demonstrated that they like range and they like horsepower. And if you can find an open gap in the market where somebody doesn't have a range horsepower mix, well, you could push push a uh, a product into that, and if you make it well enough, you could reasonably assure that you could fetch a price for it based on the range and the horsepower and everything else you put into it. So that that's what you try to do is you actually make analogies to geography, and then apply those to a market, and then look for the open spaces in the market. How does this relate back to Rene Descartes and when you were fourteen? Oh, okay. Well, and yeah, Doug, I was uh, Doug. This makes you seem really dorky, by the way. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, know. I know it's uh, it, it's interesting, Jim. I I, I had this. So this Rene Descartes prop- was the starting linebacker, right? And you were on the football team. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, Rene Descartes kind of quarterbacked a whole bunch of mathematics back in the early 1600s, and so the story goes that Rene Descartes was lying in his bed one day Rene Descartes famously would get up around noon and he was lying in his bed one day and he saw a fly land on the ceiling well if you could call it landing I guess but it fixed itself to the ceiling and he he said to himself I wonder how I could describe where that guy was and so he basically came up with the idea of just running lines to where the the walls hit the ceiling and put him in a corner and he could come up with a you know, two lines that would describe where, let's say, the right-hand wall and the wall in front of them would meet, and that became a two-dimensional system. And eventually, the, the story goes, being uh, ever-inquisitive, one day he actually put himself into an oven, which back then an oven could be a, an empty room. And he said, well, how could I describe where I am in 3D, in 3D environments? So he actually had a height to, you know, the left, left, right, and... Uh, front back kind of situation there so he came up with a 3d view and i always thought that was interesting but i i never i always wonder what it meant they basically have a lot of negative regions in these systems and so i said well what would it what does it mean to be in a cartesian system triple negative i I really couldn't wrap my head around that and then i thought about in a business environment you know you can say well instead of having negatives you could have uh, two positive two relationships and then create a positive out of it so you could say if you had more costs and you had revenue those are both positive things but you don't have to make a negative system out of it so long story short i uh, saw my wife buying a washing machine or buying a washing machine together and it occurred to me that you know she says well i'd like to have a bigger drum than i have at home so i thought capacity versus price those are two positive things working together and she says yeah we only got one delicate cycle at home we need to have more cycles and i thought cycles versus price another two positive things so she liked this machine and there was another one up the line that was same model a little bigger and i said well what about this one she says that's too expensive we can't afford it and so i realized that us in this store and everybody in every other store was make a decision where we were going to be, how many of these machines are going to be bought worldwide. So that was the quantity versus the price. 
which are also positive. And so that, uh, what happened to me right in that instant, Jim, is I, I flashed on this system where everything was positive. And this is what Rene Descartes never talked about, is a system that had four dimensions. Not mathematical mind. I mean, mathematical, not physical mind. Use a four-dimensional system that uh, turns out is being used for every every product outside of commodities. And so, um, anyway, this this thing I saw at fourteen basically was a just percolating in my head for over three decades until my wife, you know, said something. And I listened to her very deeply and came up with the idea. I had an idea when I was skiing when I was 17, dog, and I'm mm -hmm. 25 now, I think. Mm -hmm. And I still haven't done that idea yet, but I'm going to. And it's the big idea of my life. Sometimes we think oh, have well, to percolate for a while. Yeah, well, they sometimes they do, Jim. That's the thing is this this idea of been sitting around as background noise for decades. And uh, you know, all of a sudden it came out, you know, it's so pretty exciting stuff, you know quit a cushy job at uh, Lockheed Martin, started my own company and on one little five digit contract and, you know, uh, bootstrapped a bunch of times to get it going, my own funds. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been exciting. Well, I hope this takes off and proves the tool you believe it can be. How do we find out more follow online, all that stuff? Oh, well, that's, that's easy. There's a couple of websites. The, the company website is uh, www.hypernomics.com. Let me spell it for you people. It's H-Y-P-E-R-N-O-M-I-C-S, hypernomics.com. You can also go to my LinkedIn site, uh, Doug Howarth at linkedin.com. And I also have my own website, Doug Howarth dot com and my book uh entitled hypernomics colon using hidden dimensions to solve unseen problems is already available for pre-sale it comes out january 29th it's available for pre-sale on barnes and noble amazon and, and the wiley website so and you don't get any more prestigious than Wiley. That's very impressive. Congratulations. Yeah, I, I feel very lucky to be part of their team, Jim. It's 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 a dream come true. So, yeah. I had a contract with them one time, and they canceled it after they read the first oh. half. So, uh, I was... Oh, they did? I wow. Was, oh, that's terrible. I to fix another guy's book uh, on oh, issue wow. I know nothing about, and... They didn't like where he was going with it and I couldn't fix oh, it. No. We ended up losing the, the contract. So oh, that's uh, tragic. Anyway. I'm sorry, Doug. I, I have one. My, my most important question. I, I sure. believe that our politicians know nothing about economics, you know, absolutely nothing. I dream of a presidential debate where the question is, Sir, you believe you're smart enough to be our president. What does G, I'm sorry, C plus I plus G equal C plus I plus G, Mr. President, want to be? What does that equal and why is it important? And just see what they do. Then we say, well, sir, I'm sorry, but this is introduced on day one of any 101 economics. This is the most simple principle in all of economics. There's nothing easier than this. So, sir, and then 
I, not a, not a one of them would know what I'm talking about. What are your thoughts on right. a little question here? C plus I plus G. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Doug? You like my question? Uh, sorry. What? You like my question? I do. The uh, you know that's the uh, formula for those of you who don't know for for GDP, and uh, I, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, do you think they the, can answer it? No, I, I'm pretty sure they couldn't. Um, I, right now, the question that they can't answer is why do we have inflation? And um, which I think is being underreported. And what nobody seems to be talking about is that in the course of just two quarters in early 2020, they took the M1 money supply up by 400, over 400%. That's not a typo. 400%. And they let it go up from there. Now they're bringing it down by unprecedented level, unprecedented levels because they need to, but they let the money supply sky out of, out of, uh, you know, just into the stratosphere and, and nobody's talking about that right now. So yeah, that's another thing they need to address. So, well, you know, there's so many things that are not included in the definition of inflation because you don't buy them frequently enough, like a car, right? It's right. not in there, but my God, car prices have doubled it seems to me in the last five years and it's not included either because i don't know what their excuse is there but we're back at the 480 i think or something like that and uh it seems like they define inflation just on the fact that computers are getting cheaper then they're like let's call it there that's good enough guys we got one data point back up we're done You know, and I'm like, well, what about all this other stuff? What about food? Let's count some food. No, yeah. no, not food. We would never count food. You know. <laughs> That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I there's a lot of crazy stuff going on here. But yeah, they you know, people our our leaders need to be much better educated about uh economics. We do a, a bunch of silly things when it comes to taxation. What one of the things they don't understand is here in California is they seem to think that higher taxes will necessarily equal more tax revenue. And that's simply not the case. Yeah. Doug, I I would talk with you all day long, but we got to play go so that we can pay the bills. I appreciate you being with us. Congratulations. And I hope the book sells so well. Thank you so much, Jim. And thank you again so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Love your show. Our pleasure. We're out of time. We're out of time for the week. We're back on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone. Be safe. Go make a million dollars. Bye now. All right. Thanks, Jim. All right. Bye-bye.